everybody. Welcome to The Afterword. I'm Dave Tish. Now, if you don't know anything about me, one of the things uh, that might be helpful is uh, my dad was an Air Force guy. He was in the United States Air Force. He was a pilot. He was an engineer. Worked for them for his whole, whole career. And my dad loved to geek out on like tech and aviation and machinery and engineering stuff because that's what engineers do. They just geek out on stuff. Uh, somebody once said the definition between a nerd and a geek. A geek is someone who knows deep amounts of data about something that's useful. And nerds know deep amount of data about stuff that's not useful. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, my dad was definitely a geek. He loved technology. He loved stuff. In fact, he had a he loved uh, all aviation stuff, especially like the lunar stuff, the NASA stuff, because that stuff was like really important to him in his formative years. And uh, he had actually had a huge picture of one of the more famous photos ever taken in human history. It's called Earthrise. It's a picture of Earth from behind the moon in space. It was the only, the first photograph taken, uh, color photograph taken of Earth. If you're a Gen Xer, it was the cover of every single science textbook we had. Anyway, uh, I say all this because a lot of people think the Apollo 11 moon mission, the mission to send three astronauts to the moon, land, and then get them back home, uh, that, that happened in 1969, that that was the most aggressive and the most time-consuming and the most ambitious human project in human history. Uh, just to give you a sense of scale, uh, at the turn of the century, the Empire State Building was the most complex and big, biggest building that had ever been built, and it took about 7 million man-hours. So 7 million man-hours. So uh, 7 million men each spending one hour, right? It's just a staggering amount of work. Uh, but it wasn't even the biggest construction project of the 20th century. That goes to the Panama Canal. The Panama Canal was a giant undertaking. In fact, they estimate that it was about 20 million man hours. That was an incredible feat of engineering. The Apollo 11 moon mission cost about $288 billion adjusted for inflation. That's 400,000 people who worked on it. They worked on it 50 weeks a year. Uh, and they averaged about 40 hours a week of work. They only got two weeks off for vacation. And engineers had to work 56 hours a week. And they worked on it for nine years straight. So that comes out to 5.23 billion man hours. 5,230 million man hours. So it's just a staggering amount of work. But in the middle of this, I just want to say that that is not the most ambitious project that humans have ever undertaken. The most ambitious project, of course, is the kingdom of God as revealed by Jesus. More people have given more to that project, that endeavor, than any other project, and it's not probably even close. Um, so many people in the lineage and the thick history of Christianity have given their entire lives and service to build the kingdom of God, because it's not a mandate that is mandated by NASA, but instituted instead by Jesus Christ himself, the king. And the idea of building Jesus's kingdom has everything from hospitals to churches to relief centers to just healthy families to, I mean, it's just from the biggest to the smallest, there's, it's an inestimable amount of work that humans have put into it. And we believe that it's worth it. And that's what we're talking about this week, the kingdom of God, which is the subject that Matthew likes the most. Matthew uses the term kingdom of God more than 55 times in his gospel alone. It is the dominant theme. It is everywhere. It's all that Jesus seems to talk about. And if Jesus isn't talking about it, he's illustrating it. And if he's not illustrating it, he's bringing it. I mean, it's just everywhere. And so we're going to talk about the kingdom of God and what that looks like and what that means and how we can participate with it. I've got 
Jay Kim here, and we're going to actually answer some questions from you guys. And also, I've got some questions for Jay about the kingdom of God as we delve in, because I believe it's worth our best efforts and our whole lives. So with that, let's just dive right in. One of the things I like to do every now and then is when there are Laker fans, they'll say, what about Kobe? And I will say, oh, Kobe's definitely one of the 50 greatest NBA players. (laughs) And I just watch them like writhe in pain. It's great. That's what I do. Uh, Hey, man. Well, welcome to the afterword. We're here with Jay Kim. Hi. Uh, I I have so many questions right here. Oh, it's really cool. We're still doing the questions. No, cool. I, it, it, we're not. Oh. I, it's just this I that week, was for work hard, rest easy. It is. Oh. But uh, I solicited a few questions because I think this passage is actually really important. Yes, it's yes, it uh, you could say And see, here's the problem with going so slowly through Matthew. We kind of forget. We've been in this for 34 weeks or something like that. Longer. We started in December of 2021. It was late November. It was the last week of November, I think. Yeah. Right? The Advent series, right? For yeah, 21. Maybe we've spent 34 weeks in Matthew, but in terms of te- time. I think this is the 34th like, sermon. Yeah, 34th sermon. Yeah. Wow. But in terms That's of time. Crazy. Yeah, a year and a half. It's a year and a half. So, far, yeah. so the problem with that is sometimes you lose track. So we started off with like this beautiful genealogy, and then you go right into um, kind of the temptation. Then you go into this huge discourse called the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters. We spent forever on it. Yeah. Tons in there. It's cool. Then he kind of ratifies that teaching with some miracle, 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 miracle over nature, over possession, over right. bodily illness. And then we get into this. This he kind of sends out his his twelve. Yeah. And uh, this is a, a very long. If if you have a Bible where it's in red, mm. the the words of Jesus are in red. It's a it's the whole thing's red. Yes. So um, it's a discourse, right? A speech. Yes. Why would what, what's the difference uh, for the folks out there between a speech and a discourse? I don't know actually. <laughs> <laughs> um. And sometimes it's called the Missio Dei, isn't it? Yes. Well, the Missio Dei, meaning the mission of God, it's a big umbrella. It's a Latin phrase. Yes. I think theologians like to use Latin phrases whenever they, they really can do. to make themselves, even though the mission of God is a perfectly good English phrase. Yeah. They like Missio Dei. And you can make anything Latin by adding E, yeah. I at the it's end. It's the Imago Dei. <laughs> uh, I went to Chick fil A for lunch today. <laughs> yeah. Know? The Chico Filet-y. <laughs> the image of chicken. Oh, man. Okay. Um, So I have two questions for you. Okay. These are questions from people. Yes, these are questions. I have some questions from people, but I have have two questions for you. I'd like to start off with my own questions to you. Okay. Okay, so um, first of all, I love that the actual mission discourse starts off with um, kind of a peek behind the curtain about Jesus. It's kind of like the why Jesus Mm. is saying this. Yeah. And it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion Mm. on them. And this term compassion is like almost only used in the New Testament about Jesus Mm -hmm. because they were harassed 
and helpless. Yeah. Like sheep without a shepherd. And that term sheep without a shepherd, I looked it up. It's used in the Old Testament a number of times in Numbers 27, 1 Kings 22, 2 Chronicles 18, Zechariah 10. Over and over again, God looks at his people when there's bad leaders or when there's not proper religious leaders. And he yeah. says they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he does something really interesting. You would expect Jesus to say, so I'm going to send you out like shepherds to get the people who are lost sheep back in the fold. Yeah. But he changes the metaphor. Mm -hmm. He switches it. He says, um, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Why do you think he, he, he switched it? He's not. He's very intentional with his language. Why does he switch metaphors there? Because it seems pretty natural for him to just go right into shepherds. Mm. That's a great question. I, I'm certain I read some stuff about that in some of the commentaries. Yeah. Nothing really comes to mind immediately. Is it a sense of like, is he trying to get the sense of like the, the, the ripeness? It like, it has to happen now. Yeah. I, I yeah. I would assume urgency. Like you said, Jesus is really intentional with his words. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, yeah, I, I know many commentators make a point that, you know, I'm not a farmer. I didn't, I don't know if you knew that Dave, <laughs> I'm not a farmer. But you don't um, – harvest is not an automatic thing that you do like every – you don't go out every morning and harvest. There are There is harvest time. season. Yeah, there's a time for there's it. There's a yeah. season. So um, that seems to be one of the key defining markers of this metaphor. Like you said, there is a sense of urgency. So, for example – in agrarian cultures, it was a big deal. If you didn't harvest when it was harvest time, it would rot. You were done. Yeah. Cause you've got to go a whole nother season until there's a harvest again. Right. And I don't think what Jesus is saying is it's always March and July. That's when all the non-Christians become Christian. But, you know, it's not right, that right, obviously right. what he's saying is he's in, I think at, at least in part instilling a sense of urgency. Hey, it's time. Like now is time. People are more ready than you can possibly imagine. And the harvest that they're just waiting, they're waiting for, you know? Yeah. And so go. Like, Do you feel like that idea that the, the harvest is plentiful is applicable at all times in all cultures at every moment so that there's always that urgency for Christians? Because we don't, or, or, or do you think that there really is kind of in ministry a little bit of a, sometimes you sow, sometimes you reap, sometimes you sow. How do you think about it? Because you've been around church for a long time. You've probably yeah. seen seasons of not really a whole lot of harvesting and then tons of harvesting. Yeah. Uh, do you, But do you think that that urgency is always there? Gosh, I think the sense of urgency is always there because in order to harvest a farmer does all sorts of work throughout the year. You know, <clears throat> you don't just sit back and relax and just and hope. Oh, it's harvest time. Let's go. Let's get yeah. all the beautiful crop. You know, they're planting seeds, tilling the soil, water, sunlight, all that stuff over and over again. So in, in some sense, the harvest is connected to a consistent sort of constant ongoing sense of urgency. Like I've got to plant seeds here. I've got to plant seeds. If I don't, there's no harvest. I've got to water here. 
If I don't, there's no harvest. So there's always I, a fire underneath. Yeah. Right? And I think that's a part of what Jesus is getting at here. Is that beautiful or exhausting as a church leader? Oh, gosh. Well, you're asking me like as a pastor? Yeah, as a pastor. I don't know that I think about it as like beautiful or challenging and hard and exhausting. I think it's all of those things. I do think, again, Missio Dei, the mission of God, I think... This is what God's about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in some ways, ultimately, it is, it is, you know, the best things in life are hard. Yeah. You know, there's nothing great. Yeah. You remember decades from now that you're... That was, like, super that easy. That was super easy. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. all, all the stuff that yeah, you're like, oh, my good. gosh, I can't believe we did that. Yeah, that's you good. You know, in hindsight. So, yeah, it is hard, but... Uh, but it's the best way to live life for sure. Yeah. On mission with God. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Do you, uh, final question on this part. Do you have a pithy sentence or definition of the mission of God just in your own head? When somebody asks you like, what's the mission of God? Do you have a, I'm, cause Jesus gives a huge discourse here. Do you have yeah. like a one sentence thing or, or, or something that you've kind of written down or the way you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think the mission of God is, it's in the text, you know, he went throughout proclaiming the gospel, you know, the good news of the kingdom of God and healing the sick, you know, and um, in the teaching, what what we said was ultimately that the mission of God or, or faith that is fueled by the mission of God is is essentially a life that declares and proclaims the victory of Jesus over sin and death and the brokenness of the world. I, I think ultimately that is the mission of God. And encapsulated within that is all the stuff we usually equate with being a Christian, getting saved, our sins being forgiven, making the world a better place, all those things. Yeah, growing are and a part love of, of God and love of neighbor. Yeah, yeah, they are a part of the hmm. fact that Jesus rules and reigns he's he's defeated sin and death right and the brokenness of the world it's interesting because it does really does seem that part of being a faithful harvester is not just doing a thing but being a certain type of person yeah it's it's interesting because you wouldn't think think of harvest as a thing you do but also like you said it's actually kind of a way of life being a farmer is a way of life yeah so it's like also being the kind of person who is constantly um you know, aware of God's mission and right. aware of what God's trying to do in the world. Did you know that there are dating websites devoted to farmers? Oh, like uh, farmers only or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. No. I don't know why I thought of that. Yeah. I don't it's know It's because you said farmers are, farming is a way of life, <laughs> which it really is. Wasn't there a reality show? Like, uh, yeah, like, I know what you're talking about. There is a current reality show where there's like a farmer. Like the bachelor. Yeah. Only for farmers. But it's only for farmers. And instead of going in fancy dates, they like slop pigs yeah. or like. If anyone listening knows what this <laughs> show is, write to us. going to be honest. I, tell I, us I if don't. it's good. All right. Do you want to get into the questions? I'm just thinking about that farmer dating show now. I, maybe we should stop and watch it. <laughs> okay. Uh, a couple. Okay. A couple of thoughts. Um, oh, this is a question from me. Uh, this is from loyal listener, Dave Tish. <laughs> it's for you, Jay. Um, I, there's this moment where Jay says, uh, Jay, there's a moment where Jesus says, uh, I'm going to send you out like sheep among wolves yeah. and be as wise as serpent and innocent as doves. And we talked in the message about, Wise as serpents is about using wisdom, and innocent has to do with motives. Yeah, uh, that you should have a motive of love. Can you talk a little bit about um, 
where you've seen that some positive examples of the wisest serpent and innocent as doves in a specific way, um, or maybe some negative examples that you've seen. Can you share some examples of where you've seen that uh, done well or done very poorly? Yeah, I mean, you know, wise as serpents, shrewd as ser- as snakes. That that whole concept. I, I don't know. It's hard for me to to think about one particular example. I do think often, and this connects to other things we've said in previous teachings over the course of the last year and a half or so. But you know, we've talked several times. I think you and I in sermons about the fact that one of the primary weapons of the enemy of God is lies. And uh, I think we live, you know, most people know this Christian or not. Most people know we live in an age of misinformation leading to significant mistrust and distrust of institutions. And then sadly now like one another, you know? Yeah. And that, that's all really sad. But at the same time, I think it's like prime season for the enemy of God to leverage lies and so in in a weird way uh the wisest sort of wisest serpents or shrewd as serpents people i know are the ones who do the work of not getting swept up in all of the sort of vitriolic you know diatribes online about this matter or that matter Um, i think most of the people that i respect the most as, as followers of Jesus, mm-hmm. mature followers of Jesus, young and old, are the ones who do the hard work of sifting through. They look at anything sort of very pointed or very black and white, very, and certainly things that are vitriolic, they look at it with real healthy skepticism, you know, and try to uncover what's happening beneath What's the lie underneath? The surface, yeah. yeah. And so attacking I mean, those lies not people, and then yes. saying, even, I, I think I know what you're talking about, because there's a lot of people who say, here's this lie, here's how I bought into it, maybe you have too. Yeah. And then kind of humanizing that lie as a right. destructive end, right. and how it leads to like awful, and how there's a better way over here with the Jesus truth, right? Yeah. That kind of feel. Yeah. The wisdom of attacking the lie itself, and how it inhabits, and how we live out that lie, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then we talked about you know innocent as as doves. That word innocent literally means unmixed. It, it, unmixed it's, motives. It's more about purity. Yes, it's like you're you're pure in your approach to things and and in your in engagement uh, like of of the mission of God. Can I know, give you a bad example that I saw sure. today? Uh, there was a, a famous, fairly famous Christian yeah. who was riding his bike in Central Park. And came across a bunch of young men, yeah. um, 16, 17, 18, 19, whatever, smoking marijuana. He could smell it. That has a real distinct smell. Yeah. Yeah. And as he rode by, he's like, smells like failure. And then he just kept going. And he's yeah. like, I love these men. I love these young men. And I wanted to let them know. And the responses were like, no, you don't. Yeah. You, you just said that to make yourself feel good. If you loved him, you would have stopped or talked right. or had some interaction. This right. is a drive-by true thing. You don't really love them. Right. And there was a sense that um, people were like, that's that's a mixed motive. Yes. Does that make sense? Yes. Was it on social media? I think it might have been. Okay, so anything on social media to me almost always is like <laughs> mixed motive oh. in some ways. Yeah, you that's know? a good like, point. That's a good point. There's a, you know, I, I, I think it's so interesting, like when Jesus says things like when you fast, basically don't show it on your face. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like don't, when you pray, go, 
into a quiet room, you know, in the closet and pray, you know, there's like, a private devotion here. Yeah. 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 Anyways, uh, that's interesting. interesting. Okay. Let's get to the questions. Um, I don't know. I, I don't want to run out of time. I, I didn't rank these in, in terms of how good they are. Okay. This is from, uh, I think I might've missed, uh, mistyped this person's name. It's from Rack. It's probably Rick. <laughs> maybe it's Rack. Maybe it's Rack. Yeah. Uh, and this is Matthew 10, uh, 7 to 8. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. That's Jesus' instructions to his 12. And Rick, or Rack, <laughs> says, uh, was this just for back then? Was this just for the 12 back then to prove they were Jesus' apostles? Because the spreading of the message makes sense to me, but I don't know anyone cleansing lepers or raising the dead. Yeah. That's a great question. Sometimes that sort of thing comes up in Discover Westgate, mm -hmm. and typically it'll be somebody at new to our church, and they'll ask some some question along they don't typically use this language but they're essentially asking hey what are your what like what does westgate believe about um the gifts of the spirit and the more ecstatic gifts like healing you know i yeah, think yeah. that's a part of what sure. he's getting at. Like, yeah, yeah does this still happen like i don't see people doing or am it. i supposed to do this because am i'm I not supposed to, yeah, i'm not right. i don't clean clean people from leprosy i I don't raise people from the yeah. dead. Am I supposed to be doing this? Is right. this part of what it means? Yeah. Or is it just for them back then? You know, like Peter had all these miracles associated and clustered around him because yeah. he's apostolic authority of Jesus, yep. right? Well, you just said it. So my, my belief, and this is just my belief, is two things. One, I think that the gifts of the Spirit are still alive and well today. I think that healing still happen today. If you think globally about global Christianity, you know, we don't see a lot of this happening in the global West. But if you pay attention to sort of like the missionary movements, the modern missionary movements, you will hear story after story. In fact, sometimes when you when you meet during like compassion immersion here or during the summer, if you go on a go trip, you will meet some of our like Westgate's global missionaries, global ministry partners doing work in the global east, the global south. And it's not uncommon to hear from them, particularly in persecuted parts of the world. It's not uncommon to hear from them stories of ecstatic unbelievable miracles it's not uncommon right so then we're left with two choices either one they are exaggerating grossly or they're just flat out lying or two god still does these wildly sort of unfathomably miraculous things um but i think what missiologists people who study the the sort of history of god's movement in parts of the world what they have tracked is that typically the most ecstatic miraculous like literally miraculous things like blind people seeing and lame people walking those things seem to happen in clusters it's actually true in the bible as well they seem to happen in clusters when god is intending to um, break in with the things we're also desperate for, which is like revival, renew, like massive renewal amongst the people. That's when God seems to do the most miraculous things, which makes all the sense in the world. It's actually true in the Bible too. A lot of people think that the Bible from page one to page, you know, the last page is just full of miracles page after page. And that's actually not true. You can Google sort of like visual imagery of where the, the clusters of miracles happen. And they're actually clustered in very specific places and specific points in Israel's 
uh, history. Yes, and they're and always po- points, pivotal points. Yeah. Exactly, they're always points. But like God is leading His people through the desert, out of slavery into the wilderness, whole cluster of miracles, and then like nothing for a really long time. And then Elijah and Elisha, huge yep. cluster calling right back, there, calling back the away from of idolatry, God, away was, from these idols. Exactly, yeah. they've yeah. they've been the diaspora. Mm-hmm. They've now. And they're becoming like not God's people, essentially. They're worshiping other gods, a cluster of miracles, like God is calling his people back. And then nothing for a long time. And then the Son of God arrives and brings the, the good news of the kingdom, and eventually he'll die. Tons of miracles. And then just miracles. And then the clusters. Uh, early church. And then the early tons church, of, yeah. tons of miracles, yeah. right? Interesting. So I think to to Rick or, or Rack. <laughs> question <laughs> sorry rick if that's your name I'm, i misspelled I, it rack <laughs> i think that would be my best response yeah yes god still does miracles yeah but no i don't think i don't i don't think he's asking this necessarily but it doesn't mean like you're not joining in the mission of god because you're not healing blind people if god chooses to do that through you what a gift that's incredible and i think god can choose to do that but i think in most cases today um, we're in a different season, like here in the modern West and in America in particular, where I think that's one of the reasons why we just we don't typically see so much of of the ecstatic miracles. Yeah. All right. This next one is about Matthew 10. Um, this uh, <laughs> I love this email. I have a friend who loves to quote Matthew 10 about how followers of Jesus will be hated. But this guy's arrogant and has this old school culture warrior fundamentalist judgmental vibe to him. He's just odious. But every tra- every time I try to help him see that people aren't rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting his buffoonery. He digs in his heels saying it's proof that he's being faithful to Jesus, whereas other Christians are watering down the gospel because people are coming to church and responding. Have you ever dealt with this? And then he puts help. <laughs> I think he means like, help me help my friend. I think yeah. that that's what he means. Yeah. Um, so well, I don't know, Dave. What, we've talked about this a little bit. What do you think? Um, yeah, I, I. Well, Steve talks about this often. He says that there's a way to talk about the kingdom of God in such a way that you're actually doing violence to the message, mm. um, or put another way, the way of Christ is the message, mm. or at least is part of the message. Yeah. Um, so, and we're going to talk about this next week or in a couple of weeks when Jesus says um, a number of things about being lowly, you know, and about being gentle. Um, so I think that there is, there is fruit. I think fruit, uh, it, it, and it is, it is challenging. Yeah. Um, it is a challenge, but I, I don't know how do you convince somebody that they're, <laughs> they're coming or I haven't had a whole lot of success telling my friends um in that situation, Hey, you're, you're being a super jerk. You know, it's, yeah. there's sometimes, um, that can be hard. That can be, that that's a hard convo to have with a friend, um, who sees things really differently than you. Yeah. Uh, but often, often scripture, yeah. um, saying, Hey th- man, that does, that seems like your tactic is actually out of bounds with the way of Jesus Yeah, or something like that. Um, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I think there is a very distinct and critically important difference between um, receiving uh, <laughs> antagonism um, because, you know, because the person is antagonistic. There's a difference between that and intentionally trying to trigger antagonism <laughs> and and um, initiating 
initiating it with your own antagonism. You know, like you said, the Bible is pretty clear about um, the posture of, of a Christian and the posture of Jesus who in humility, you know, he humbled himself. Um, the spirit of God in us that bears the fruit of gentleness and kindness and goodness. I think those are the, those are the lenses through which we have to sort of measure our actions. Uh, Cause yeah, you and I both know people who was like, I knew it, Matthew 10, you know, they ignore Galatians five or, you know, all the Pauline texts about um, uh, what, uh, the spirit of God sort of cultivates in us, you know, they ignore all that. It's just Matthew 10 is the jam is their jam. Yeah. It's like, I knew it. Everyone's going to hate me. That's it. You know, <laughs> I wear it loud and proud. It's like, well, well, you're an enemy of God. Well, well, yeah. how did Jesus treat his enemies? Yeah, exactly. He dies yeah. on a cross and yeah. welcomes the thief on the cross into the paradise. I also think Jesus, <laughs> you know, Jesus knows he's talking to the young men who after his death, resurrection and ascension, would give rise to the early church. Like they would, they would begin the movement that would lead to several centuries of intense persecution, you know? And it was more literally true for these men and women who followed Jesus for those first few centuries than it ever will be for us. They were literally hated and killed for it. That's very different than, yeah. you know, posting on Facebook some Bible verse and someone's like, what, you know, or whatever. And you're like, see, I knew it. They hate me. I'm doing it for the gospel. It's like, well, it's a little different, you know? And, uh, yeah. Well, that dovetails into this question. This is from an artist in the Artist Collective, which is led by Les Lederman. Yeah. Um, it's a collection of artists that kind of yep. think about it. And artists actually often come to the text with an artist heart and an yeah. artist mind. This person says, I have a deep conviction that Jesus is beautiful and that when people see Jesus for who he is and what he's done, they'll be drawn to that beauty. Um how do I reconcile this idea with Jesus has not come to bring peace, but a sword and his warnings that his disciples will be hated. Yeah. Well, I think in some ways the Bible is full of, you know, on the surface paradoxes like this, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anyone who loves their father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, you know? Um, but then on the cross, Jesus will say to John of his earthly mother, this is your this son. Is, is your, yeah. yeah. And, and this is your mother. It's essentially yeah. a way of saying, yeah, care take, for yeah, take care of her. You know? yeah. It's like, this is my mom, dude. Take care. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's a big deal. Like, I mean, so that, that's a paradox, yeah. you know, like, yeah. And then earlier in the story when he's a little boy, right. It's like, where were you? Why did you run off to the temple? It's like, I'm in my father's house. He says that to his dad, <laughs> which is like the most messed up, you know, it's like, like, son, where'd you go? It's like, my I'm in dad's my dad's house. house. <laughs> it's basically him. Like, you're not my dad, you know, which is theologically kind of true, but, um, and biologically as well. But you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. full of paradoxes yeah. like this. Yeah. So that it's a wonderful question. It warrant there have been books written like entire books, volumes of books written about the question that this this person is asking, mm -hmm. which really I don't know if they know they're asking, but they're asking about the paradox of scripture, essentially, the perceived incoherence of the Bible. So it's too much to sort of answer here. Um I mean we're happy to talk if, if they right. want to, but I would say uh they're they're not paradoxes. Right. And there is a sense that um 
that when Jesus appears beautiful to someone, the spirit has been active in their lives, right? Yeah. And that's not everyone. We're going to see as we march through the Gospel of Matthew in the next couple of chapters, there's significant opposition to Jesus yeah. at moments when he is incredibly, to, to use this person's words, beautiful. He's yeah. doing really beautiful things, and they want to kill him. Yeah. And that's that, that's the paradox of the human heart, yeah. right? Sometimes when Jesus confronts someone, they spiral toward heaven, and sometimes they spiral toward hell. Yeah. It's just he causes people to spiral because he's confronting all sorts of stuff inside the human heart, you know? Yeah, and there's a whole world of a sort of um, philosophical, theological conversation that we don't have time to get into and that I don't even fully, totally understand well enough to explain here adequately. But essentially, you know, a core tenet of Christian belief, we don't talk about it much here, is, you know, culturally, this person as an artist would understand this. Like, in some ways, beauty is subjective, right? That's culturally what we would say. It's like one person might look at a Jackson Pollock and say, oh, my gosh, that's mesmerizing. It's stunning. The same, Another person would look at the same piece and say... My toddler could do that. Right, what a hot mess, <laughs> right? Like, beauty is, is yeah, subjective yeah, yeah. in some ways. Well, within the world of uh, Christian theology and, and um, you know, philosophical thought... Uh, there's a whole stream of conversation and dialogue and rich, robust tradition that tells us beauty and goodness and truth, these things in, in their very essence are not actually subjective. They emanate from the truly good one or the truly beautiful one. And that would be... That's profound. Right? Christ himself. So in some ways, when this person asks the question... Like, I, I believe everyone will see Jesus, and when they really see him, they'll know he's beautiful, but how do I reckon with this kind of thing? You're almost wrestling with something that is true, but also in tension with something that you believe, because you and I live in the modern Western world, which is that um, beauty is subjective. Meaning, I think what the question implies is, to say, oh, if you love, everyone will be hated because of me. It's like, that's not beautiful, is what they're saying. Right. But I, I think when they really see Jesus, so how do I wrestle with this? Yeah, yeah. I would argue, and this is going to sound weird, but all of this is beautiful. It doesn't feel like it on the surface, but if you really dig beneath the surface, and if beauty, true beauty emanates from the truly beautiful one, Jesus, the whole thing is beautiful. Not chopped up into little fortune cookie bite-sized verses. You, you can make it say whatever you want it to say, you know? Mm -hmm. But within the context of the entire story, in, in the Bible's original literary intent, um, it's all beautiful. Are you saying, like, it's beautiful that God gave us free will to reject him? Like, that kind of thing? Oh, gosh. I or mean, is that... We would that, have to dive deeper So that's not what that. you were talking about. That's no. not what I mean. Okay. I, I don't mean that... Are perceived. This is like getting oh, into the yeah. realm of philosophy yeah. that We're, is beyond me in some ways. Sure. I'm not saying that our perception, our perceived understanding of particular texts are beautiful. I'm saying like the Jesus from which all of this emanates ah, is beautiful. I see. Right. So beauty He's the is the source of life and beauty. Yeah. And goodness. So yeah. beauty. He is ultimate beauty. So the yeah. biblical text in its wholeness, the story it tells us. It about all points Jesus to the. Yeah. 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 That, that, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, let's do a final one. This is from a high school student. 
And uh, I'm going to read the whole thing because I love it. Okay. Okay. Hey, hey, Jay. A few months ago, I invited my friend to come to church with me, and she agreed to come. She wasn't nervous to go because I told her I'd stay with her and introduce her to my friends. She came, and now she loves it. Everyone was so welcoming, even our leader. She comes now nearly every Sunday and midweek, but her parents aren't Christian. When she told them she wanted to change her schedule next fall to be in life groups, her parents said no. Her priority is school. What should she do? What should I tell her? P.S. I love that you're Korean and talk about how your mom made church the center of your guys' life. My family too. Hashtag samesies. Hashtag normalized church. <laughs> oh my gosh. Isn't that great? That's the best. Well, oh. first of all, well done. Kudos to you yeah. for inviting a friend. It's really cool. I know this person and uh, she's mean, really awesome. That's like. She's really awesome. You know. On one hand, you're like, I invited a friend to church, which is cool, but you may have changed the trajectory yeah. of a friend's yeah. eternity. Yeah. You know, who knows? I mean, like, that's very possible, which is incredible. So yeah. well done. Like, that's, that's you know, the mission of God. It's like the most important thing you could, you can give your life to. So as a busy high school student, to do something like that, oh, my gosh, that's, like, so inspiring to me. So. I'm grateful for you. Um, gosh, that what a great question. You know, we said in the teaching, um, I don't know. It, it's intense because there's this whole thing about like honor your father and mother. So am I going to ask her to disobey one command to go, you know, do not give up meeting with one another. It's like, okay, there's the Exodus command and then there's the Hebrews command. Let's break one to meet, you know, it's again, paradox hard. of scripture. And I what do you that, do? And I think that that's what this student is saying. Yeah. It's like, I really want my friend to come to church. I think it's important to yes. prioritize the spiritual life, but her parents are like not on board and they're like, yeah. no, don't yeah. like, and they have the final say, like she doesn't. Right. Gosh. Yeah. And, and that, so she's like, how do I help my friend? Yeah. Well, I'm just going to get really practical. It's just my opinion. Sure. I think one, it does matter that as a part of this friend's sort of witness of um, Christ, not that this friend is a Christian yet. Maybe, maybe the friend is a Christian. Maybe the friend isn't a Christian yet, but either way, if this friend is, is trekking down that path as a part of um, being a witness of the kingdom, witness of Christ. I do think it matters that as long as her parents are not asking her to do something that is a sinful violation of the way of Jesus, that she should do her best. The friend should do their best to, to honor mom, to and, dad. Honor mom and dad. So yeah. now it poses another problem, but this friend is like beginning to really get into church and explore Jesus. But now she can't be a part of community. Yeah. I think that's where you got to get creative. Like you, as as her friend, you need to be really present. I'm assuming it's a school friend. Yeah. You know, see them regularly. That's awesome. Um, keep doing that. Events, you know. Um, keep keep chiseling away and working on mom and dad. Again, very practically, there's no guarantee of this, but I have found that uh, parents, because you know, I was a youth pastor. You were a youth pastor for a long time. Had similar situations. It's interesting how how often non-Christian unchurched parents will be more and more open to their kid being involved at church when they begin to see their kid change. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Again, that's what it means to be bear witness to the way yeah. of Jesus is like, they're not religious, but their kid is nicer. <laughs> their kid listens more. 
You know, their kid helps like, out at home. Helps more, out. Their kinder, kid, yeah. Their kids, the countenance is just lighter and freer yeah. and brighter and more joyful. What parent, most parents, all healthy parents, what they care about most is that their kid is experiencing those things, right? Mm. Love and joy and peace. When they start seeing that and they connect the dot, it's like they start going to that church thing and they're just better. And now they're asking me if they can go more to that thing. Usually over time, um, the parents are, are much more open, yeah. you know? So, uh, yeah, play the long game, I guess would be my recommendation. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. It's also possible that, and I had this, I've had this experience. So have you, uh, when a kid really wants to prioritize church, but the parents are afraid it's going to interfere with some priority Yeah. to say, mom, dad, I know you're afraid of the priority. Here's my plan for making sure that priority doesn't slip. Yeah, that's great. And then say, can that's I please good. go? If yeah. I, if these are done, like I'm going to do all these things, yep. this will be done. It's yeah. my priority because I know that's your priority, but can I also go here? Yeah, when the parents good. see that you have a plan and yeah. that you're, you're prioritizing it, they're more, they're sometimes often a little bit more open. Yeah. The other thing is shout out to this girl's parents if, and, and they know who they are and they're listening. They pick this student up from her, from her home and driver mm. so that there's no, there's literally no burden on the parents. Yeah, you know what I mean? Cool. It's very, I love it. it's very cool. It's yeah, very cool. Awesome. Anyway, well, that's about kingdom. Jay. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for, for joining us. Yeah. Thanks. A uh, lot of, a lot of kingdom stuff here. Yes. And, uh, good stuff. It's, it's hard, but it's, it's, it's really, really awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you next week, man. See you guys. All right. Bye. Just want to say thanks to Jay Kim for stopping by, and uh, we will see you next week when we continue on in our conversation in the book of Matthew. Andy Gridley and Dana Clifford will be here, so uh, join us for that, and uh, we'll see you next week.